Good morning. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. If you do not have perhaps your own copy of your Bible with you, then uh, we invite you to use one of the Bibles in, front of you, in the pew in front of you. You can find 2 Samuel chapter 7 on page 259 of that Bible. While you're turning there, I just want to say um, how grateful I am, not only for the opportunity that's been given me these last couple of weeks to bring the Word of God to you, but for your encouragement and support, especially in your prayer for me. There's different times through the week. You know, it's, it's a roller coaster through the week. Uh, sometimes um, I feel far from God. I need uh, His grace at work. And uh, other times I feel Him drawing me very close to Himself. And I just want to weep as I study and prepare for the sermon. And I do believe that um, this is God's answer to many of your prayers for me. So I thank you. And I ask that you would continue to do the same for Kevin as he prepares to preach and bring God's Word over the next two weeks. If you have found your place in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I invite you to stand with me. And we'll read verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more." And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, 
and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now I would ask you to turn uh, with me to the New Testament I'm sorry I've made a change. I've uh, made it hard for Gary to know, but I'd like for us, instead of reading Revelation right now, I'd like for us to turn to the Gospel of Luke. (laughs) Luke chapter 1. And that uh, can be found on page 855 if you're using the Pew Bible. We're just going to read verses 30 through 33. The announcement that Gabriel makes to Mary. So Luke, 30, uh, Luke 1, verses 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Let's pray. Our Father, we do call to you and ask this morning that you would gladden our hearts with the message of your Son. Would you open our eyes to see the glory of his kingdom? And would you use this to spur us to faithful service and endurance for him? We pray it all in his name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. We have been looking at some of those promises and their fulfillment in Christ over the last two weeks. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who came to destroy the works of the devil. He is the son of Abraham who brings blessing to the nations. Today, we want to see Jesus as the son of David who establishes God's righteous kingdom. Now, the Bible has so much to say about this kingdom. In fact, we can say say that the story of the Bible is the story of God's kingdom. The promise of this kingdom carries the storyline of the Old Testament forward from where we left off last week. The establishment of that kingdom will meet the needs of God's people when they are divided and oppressed. The prosperity and blessing of that kingdom are what God's people desire and long for. And so conversely, the defeats and failures of that kingdom bring great sorrow and grief to their hearts. But when it seems that all they see is failure and defeat and division and decline... It is the assurance of the eventual triumph of that kingdom that sustains them. 
It gives them great courage and zeal. And most of all, the story of this kingdom is precious to the people of God. It should be precious to every one of us here because the story of the kingdom is really the story of the king. If we want to learn about Christ, if we want to know him more fully and deeply, we must come to know him as he is revealed in Scripture. And the revelation of Christ as the son of David and therefore the rightful king of God's people is fundamental to our understanding of who he is and what he came to accomplish. Now at the very heart of this, uh, the heart and the foundation of this kingdom that scripture reveals to us is the promise that God makes to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'd ask you to turn back there with me if you if you lost your place. Um, I think the word of the Lord that comes to David here in this chapter can be divided into three sections. The first one is verses 4 through 7. It's somewhat introductory. And the idea in this section is captured by the question God asks at the end of verse 5. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Of course, this is in response to David's desire to build a dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant, to replace the tabernacle, which was really a a beautiful, glorified tent. He wanted to replace it with a temple that would be larger, more permanent, and more glorious. And so it would be a place that was more fitting, at least in David's mind, for the Israelites to come and worship God. Well, the, the desire is good, And the idea makes sense, not only to David, but also to the prophet Nathan. So he tells him, do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. But the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and tells him it is not God's will for David to build him this house. God tells him he doesn't need a house to live in. This was not a command that he had previously given to the judges or to Moses Basically, he is saying he does not stand in need of David to provide any service for him. I think this is a lesson we all need to learn, but it's one that's hard for us to learn. We have our ideas of how we want to serve God, and sometimes God says no, doesn't he? In fact, I know someone very well who accepts this idea in theory, but he often struggles with it in practice. And uh, the reason I know him so well is because I look at him in the mirror every day. I can remember more than one period of my life, but especially I think a number of years ago when we were still living in Kansas City, there were some ministry opportunities I wanted to pursue, and God just shut the door. But my heart was so set on my ambitions for the work I wanted to do for God, I struggled with depression and doubts about God's goodness and doubts about whether God was really committed to carrying through his purpose in my life. I had confused my purpose with God's purpose. I can remember times I would come home from work, just lie down on the living room floor, stare up at the ceiling like I had nothing else to do because I honestly felt like I really didn't have any reason to live. Why was that? Why would I feel that way? 
it's because my work for God had become very large in my mind and his work had become small. I think many of us still struggle with that. You may desire a particular position for ministry to accomplish what you believe would be profitable and glorifying to God. You may be disappointed because God in his sovereignty does not open that door and things do not work out as you had hoped. I'm certainly not saying that we should stop pursuing avenues of service. God wants us to serve, but we serve according to his purpose and his pleasure and will. And that means he determines where and how and what the results will be. And we certainly see in this revelation to David that his plan and purpose are far greater than ours. God has something far greater in mind. Well, that's first. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our service. I want to say it this way. Man cannot build a house for God. I think that's the central idea of verses 4 through 7. Man cannot build a house for God. And that sets the stage for everything else that follows in this passage. The house of God, the kingdom of God, the work of God does not rest upon the work of man. What scripture sometimes calls the arm of the flesh. God accomplishes his work by his power in his way to show that all the glory is reserved for him. That's foundational. But let's go now and look at the second portion of this passage, verses 8 through 11. And I think this sort of opens a a window to give us a little more glimpse into the purpose of God and what work he is going to accomplish for David and his people. Here the idea, the main idea as we see it in verse 8 is that God had made David prince over or ruler over his people Israel. From the very humble position of tending sheep. And notice, I think this is humorous. He doesn't even say he was leading the sheep, right? He says he was following the sheep. From that lowly position, he's promoted to a position of great honor and responsibility. God reminds him his presence has been with him wherever he has gone. He has given him great success and victory over his enemies. And the promise God reveals to him at the end of verse 9 helps us see something. I will make for you a great name. Wow, where have we seen that idea before? We saw it back in Genesis 12, didn't we? That's the promise God made to Abraham. I will make your name great. You see, God is carrying forward the promise that he made to Abraham through his offspring in the tribe of Judah. You may remember this was prophesied in Genesis 49. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, pronounces a prophetic blessing on his 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And speaking of Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah is the kingly tribe. David is descended from Judah. God is carrying out his purpose. And God declares his intended blessing for Israel. He's going to plant them securely in their own place, free from the trouble and oppression they experienced during the days of the judges. And that reminds us how the need for a king became so apparent during the first 400 years of Israel's history in the land. The author of Judges 
uh, the book of Judges says it first in chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then he repeats it again at the very end of the book. It's like he decides, I need to say that again. It's a, it's a fitting conclusion. It's a good summary of what those days were like. They were awful, terrible days when horrible things happened. Some of those stories are, are even ones that we decide to skip over in children's Sunday school, right? Because we think they're just not sure the kids are ready to hear this. And the children of Israel reach what seems to be an obvious conclusion. They need a king. Their desire for a king was not wrong. It was always expected and assumed that they would have a king. God even gives instructions for that. The problem is they don't seek a king according to God's will. We can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They want a king that will make them like all the nations around them. That's the wrong standard of kingship. Israel was warned against becoming like the nations around them. They were a unique people who belonged exclusively to God by his own covenant. Their king was supposed to be different from the despots of the ancient Near East who claimed absolute power over the life and death of their subjects. The instructions for the Israelite king were given. They're given back in Deuteronomy 17. He's not to acquire for himself many horses or multiple wives or excessive silver and gold. His heart is not to be lifted up above his brothers. He's to apply himself to the work of writing out by hand his own copy of God's law to keep with him and to read. And here's the purpose for that as it's stated in verse 19 that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he might continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Well, we know, if you know the story, the first king of Israel, Saul, failed to obey God's law. On one occasion, he tried to take on the authority of the priest by sacrificing a burnt offering in Samuel's absence. Later, he disobeyed God's command by failing to kill the king of the Amalekites and by saving the best of the sheep and the cattle. You remember that God had commanded him to destroy. So God told him because he had rejected his word, God was rejecting him from being king. So the book of 1 Samuel is all about this question of Who is the rightful king of Israel? It's not enough that Israel has a king. It has to be the right king. And God is reminding David in our passage here in 2 Samuel 7 that God had chosen him to be ruler. David had not promoted himself to the throne even after Samuel had anointed him and made clear that he was to be the next king. He continued in faithful service first to his father, then later to King Saul. Remember, God used him to save Israel by killing Goliath, which is not primarily a lesson about how to be brave. It's it's a picture of the kind of king that Israel needs to deliver them from their enemies. And then Saul becomes jealous and persecutes David. David is hunted like an animal And forced to stay on the run out in the wilderness and in the land of the Philistines for years. And even then he refuses to take advantage of at least two opportunities to take Saul out of the picture and ascend to the throne before God's time. 
In his early years, David is a picture of the ideal king. He's chosen by God. He has a heart for God and his righteousness. And God promises him he would be used to defeat Israel's enemies and give them rest within their own land. So first we saw man cannot build a house for God. But second, God provides peace for his people by the appointment of his chosen king. That's verses 8 through 11. God provides peace for his people by the appointment of his chosen king. However, it's clear that David would not be the king that would bring permanent blessing to his people. And that brings us to the third section of the passage, which is introduced, I believe, by the promise at the end of verse 11. I think this promise serves as a good heading for everything else that God will say in verses 12 through 16. And that's what's clearly meant to be the climax of this entire chapter. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, this is the end of verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Well, this is God's own answer, isn't it, to His own question that he asked David back in verse 5. Are you going to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. What he means by that is it's a kingdom that's going to last forever. After David has died, God is going to raise up one of David's offspring who will inherit the throne and the kingdom established by God. And the language that he uses to describe this offspring and all all that he will receive, functions in a way that is similar to the promises he makes to Abraham and to Israel throughout the Old Testament. Abraham was going to be the father of a great nation that would receive the land of Canaan. That was fulfilled partially and temporarily in the history of Israel. But ultimately, what was in view was all the people of God who would become sons of Abraham by faith and receive their inheritance in the new heaven, and the new earth. And and it's like that here. Some of the language applies directly to Solomon, David's immediate son. He is the one who will build a house for God's name. That's the temple that David had in mind. But someday, a greater temple will be built by the greater son of David. That temple will not be built of cedar and gold and silver, but of living stones. It's the way Peter describes the spiritual house of God, the holy priesthood that offers up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God will be a father to David's son Solomon, but that is a foretaste of the relationship between God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. Solomon, as well as his sons, will commit iniquity, and God will discipline them without taking away his steadfast love for them. But ultimately, that love can only be secured by the son of David who takes upon himself the iniquity of others and then rises from the dead. The kingdom of Israel under the old covenant was not going to last forever. But here God promises a house and a kingdom and a throne. They're all ways of saying the same thing, which will be made sure and established forever. That can't happen under Solomon. It can't can't happen under his son Rehoboam or Abijam or any of the kings that follow in 1 and 2 Kings. 
But it's a promise that will be anticipated for generations and for centuries as the people of God waited for the coming of the great king, the true son of David. That anticipation is expressed beautifully for us in poetic language in Psalm 72. I want us to turn there briefly. Psalm 72. The heading at the beginning of this psalm says, It is of Solomon, which some take to mean that that it is written by Solomon, which could certainly be the case. And others believe that it's it's about Solomon, someone, perhaps even David, writing and praying this for the king. But either way, it's a prayer for the king. It's written in a way that shows the hopes and aspirations of God's people for the fulfillment of God's promise to David. The first request you can see at the very beginning is that God would give his righteousness and justice to the king so that the king would then be able to administer justice to the people and especially to the poor. The priorities of this king, in fact, are stated in verse 4. They are to defend the cause of the poor and to give deliverance to the children of the needy and to crush the oppressor. The prosperity and righteousness of this kingdom are desired in verses 3 and 6 and 7. The reign of this king is supposed to last forever in verse 5. And the extent of his dominion is to be from sea to sea, even to the ends of the earth. He will experience victory and conquest over his enemies. They will be made to lick the dust, as God, remember, announced to the serpent in Genesis 3. All the kings of the earth will give him tribute and homage as they fall down before him. And again, special attention is paid to his care for the poor and the weak and the needy in verses 12 through 14. And the length and quality of his reign are celebrated in the closing verses. Peaking perhaps in verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So you see, verse 9 had the language from Genesis 3. Now verse 17 has has language from Genesis 12. You see how the hopes of God's people, from the first promise of the gospel in the garden to the blessing pronounced upon Abraham and his descendants, They're all fulfilled in this son of David who is established as king forever over all the earth. The revelation of God to David about his son in 2 Samuel 7, especially verses 12 through 16, it becomes the foundation of God's kingdom and it becomes the source of hope for God's people and the center of their desires until the day that it finally all comes to pass. The Davidic son receives an everlasting kingdom. Verses 12 through 13. The Davidic family receives God's everlasting love. Verses 14 through 15. And the Davidic throne receives an everlasting foundation. Verse 16. We put that all together. Verses 12 through 16. What we have is God exalts the son of David by establishing his everlasting kingdom. Man cannot build a house for God. 
God provides peace for his people by the appointment of his chosen king. And finally, God exalts the son of David by establishing his everlasting kingdom. And it all comes about not by the power and accomplishment of men, not by the arm of the flesh, but by the power and purpose and promise of God. It's the only way it could come about, right? We look and we think about the subsequent events in, that, that take place within David's family. How long does it take for the history of David's kingdom to turn to tragedy, right? Four chapters later. Chapter 8 describes some military victories for David. Chapter 9 shows the kindness that David gives to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Chapter 10 relates more military victories. God is continuing to bless David. We get to chapter 11, where David engages in an unbelievable abuse of power, commits a shameful act with the wife of Uriah, who is probably a personal friend of David. Certainly he's one of his most trusting and loyal followers. And to cover up his sin, David has Uriah murdered. And his actions set into motion a series of tragedies and conflict that will shake the kingdom. And both his family and his nation will suffer the aftermath of that event for the rest of his life, won't they? Well, his son Solomon will be blessed beyond measure. Building the temple like God had promised, expanding the glory and wealth of the kingdom far beyond what David ever experienced. But at the very height of Solomon's success, there are some ominous signs, some cracks appearing in the walls. He disregards God's instructions that we looked at earlier in Deuteronomy 17. Not to multiply for himself wealth and horses and wives. And the foreign wives that he marries lead him astray to worship false gods. And from that point on, the course of the kingdom is mostly downhill. His son Rehoboam ascends to the throne. The people approach him because they're unhappy about the heavy tax burden they've been paying. And he foolishly takes the advice of some of his counselors who tell him to assert his authority with threats and intimidation and ends up causing a revolt. I think what that must have been like for the, for the other counselors who knew what he should do. can't believe what, what's happening. can't believe what he did. Look what, look what happens as a result. From that time forward, the nation is divided into two. And those two kingdoms often war against one another. And the kings of each nation, for the most part, lead the people away from obedience to Yahweh, their true God, their covenant Lord. And instead they lead them into idolatry and all kinds of practices that are offensive and detestable to God. But God had made his promise to David, remember? He remains committed to his kingdom and his covenant. So he sends prophets to warn the kings and the priests and the people of impending judgment that will be the consequence of their sin. 
These prophets are like attorneys who are called to prosecute the violation of the covenant. But they also fulfill another role. They foretell the restoration of God's favor upon his kingdom. They're like night watchmen who light bright lamps for the people of God as the sun appears to be setting on the kingdom of David. And I want to hold up some of those lamps for you this morning. I want to read some of the promises that God gave to his people through the prophets about the kingdom of David that they saw in such serious decline in their own day. First from the prophet Isaiah. It's what Stacy read at the beginning of the service. And the choir song referred to this. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now go to chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse... And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It goes on to describe the reign of this king who comes forth from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. The reference to the stump of Jesse is the, the family of David. And it's the, idea, um, about, it's the idea of a tree that has been cut down to the stump. But then a branch shoots out from that stump and shows new life and growth. And will in fact grow to be a greater tree than the original. That would be the future of the kingdom of David that was in such peril. Let's go to Isaiah 55, verse 3. This is in the context of an amazing, gracious call. An invitation to everyone who thirsts, to the one who has no money. Nevertheless, they're invited to come, buy, and eat. God makes this promise to all who come. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. What covenant is he talking about? My steadfast, sure love for David. All who will come are assured of their inclusion within this covenant that God made with David. A few more. Amos chapter 9. Verse 11.
More bright lamps for the people of God who are facing the darkness. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. He's going to repair, rebuild this dynasty, this kingdom that once belonged to David. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. And these are just a sampling of verses. We could turn to many other places throughout the prophets, but Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Finally, one more verse, Ezekiel 34. Verses 22 through 24. God declares his intentions for his people. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now think what this is like for a faithful believer in the true God during this period. A citizen of the kingdom who longs for the peace and prosperity of God's people. Your hopes tend to rise and fall, would they not, with the news that comes from Jerusalem. Sometimes there's a good king, a, a good king and the news is actually good. More often there are reports of injustice and oppression, idolatry, abomination, even child sacrifice, things like that, and you just shake your head and wonder how these things can be happening. How can your king be so foolish? How can your fellow countrymen be so blind? And you fear for what might be in store for everything and everyone you love. You know, we know what it is, I think, to be troubled about the future of our nation. We're concerned about things like Ongoing deficits, the national debt, the fiscal cliff. We're deeply grieved about things like abortion and the erosion of a biblical view of marriage. We see immorality and violence all around us as we witnessed this week. That really doesn't compare to what the people of Israel were going through because of this primary difference. America has never been and never will be God's own people. Israel was. This is not just their country, it's God's nation falling into judgment and ruin. So think about 
the exiles who are led into captivity in Babylon. What they feared more than anything else had taken place before their very eyes. Their kingdom is conquered. Their homes are gone. Their temple is destroyed. Their family members are dead. Their king is deposed. And they don't know how any of this is ever coming back. But they gathered together in their synagogue, in the land of their captivity, and they listened to someone perhaps read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Hmm, perhaps at times chapter 11. Oh, the kingdom of David is like a tree that's been cut down, but a shoot is going to come from the stump. It must mean that God is not done. It must mean this isn't the end of the story. And so God's remnant learns to wait. They wait with endurance. They wait with expectation. They think, oh, if only that day would come soon. That the son of David would come and defeat his enemies and restore the exiles and rebuild the kingdom and defend the poor and give peace and prosperity to God's people and establish his righteous rule over all the Gentiles and the ends of the earth. Mm. Can you identify with that longing? Can you taste the desire that they hungered and thirsted for for ages? Well, God's word is true. He remains faithful to his promise. He fulfills his purpose by his own zeal and might. And though generations lived and died without ever seeing the fulfillment of this promise, the good news that was preached in the days of Tiberius Caesar, the New Testament is very specific about dating this for us. When the Roman Empire ruled the earth, when a Gentile governor claimed authority over Judea, When an immoral half-Jew sat on the throne of Israel, the good news was announced that the son of David had appeared and the kingdom of God had come. And the New Testament writers never shrink or draw back from making this contrast. Here's the way it looks according to the opinions and perspectives of men. And here's the way it is in reality. Here's God's view. It looks like the kingdom of man is in complete control, doesn't it? But God sets his king upon his holy hill. Jesus doesn't look like the king the people were expecting. Okay, he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem, but born in a, in a stable, uh, basically a barn. What kind of king is born under those circumstances? He's raised in irreligious, Gentile-dominated Galilee. He hangs out with a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. And finally, he's executed by the leaders who carry all the power and influence of the day. It's not what the masses had in mind when they called him the son of David, is it? And you see how God repeats this throughout history. He makes his promise to the kingdom of David, but it doesn't look like there's any way it can be fulfilled. The son of David comes, but no one can believe that he's the victorious king when he's lying dead in a tomb. He rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, takes his throne at the right hand of the father. But to most of the world, his rule remains hidden. His followers still live as strangers and exiles 
in a country that is not their home. Brothers and sisters, I want to read just a couple more verses from the New Testament that remind us how we're supposed to look at Jesus as the son of David, who presently rules with all authority over the kingdom of God. The first is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 8. The context here is the hard work and endurance that is called for in the life of a soldier or an athlete or a farmer. They're all illustrations of, of what is called for as a follower of Jesus Christ. So what is it that will give Timothy the strength to persevere even in the midst of suffering and persecution? Here it is. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul is bound in chains as a criminal, he says. It doesn't look like his king is the one who is in charge, does it? It looks like Nero's in charge. But he tells Timothy to remember Jesus Christ, not waiting for him to gain his authority. He has already risen from the dead and taken his place as the offspring of David. And just because Paul is in prison doesn't mean the word of God is bound. It remains for Paul and for us to endure everything for the sake of the elect. That's what he says in verse 10. This reality calls us to die with him in order to live with him, to endure so that we might reign with him, and to remain faithful in light of his faithfulness to himself. That's all in verses 11 through 13. So, this knowledge of Jesus as the reigning son of David calls us to remember at least three things. He remains faithful to himself. He rewards faithful service. And he requires full loyalty. Jesus remains faithful to himself. He rewards faithful service. And he requires full loyalty. Last of all, and we are practically done, but Jesus refers to himself as the offspring of David at the very end of the book of Revelation. It's chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Why does he use this particular language at the very conclusion of his revelation to us? Well, he's reminding those who face the threats and persecution of a world system that sets itself in opposition to the kingdom of God. He's reminding them who really is the king. The descendant of David is the one spoken of so many places throughout scripture, as we've seen this morning, as the king of God's people. And the bright morning star is a reference to his royalty as foretold by Balaam in Numbers 24. Jesus is reminding you that he is the reigning king. We see this back in In Revelation 5, we won't take the time to turn there, but remember the scroll with seven seals that no one can open. Well, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, John is told, who has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And all the events that follow, all the terrible things that happen that follow the opening of the seals, it's all under his authority and rule. 
Brothers and sisters, take courage from the reign of your king. I'm not going to say that the struggles and sorrows of this life don't matter because they're real and they cause us real grief. We are grieved by the unbelief that we see all around us and within our own hearts. We're often grieved by the condition of our nation, our families, our churches. But the grief is temporary. And his reign is eternal. The kingdoms of this world are coming to an end. His kingdom is forever. The glory of his kingdom is the call that pulls us. It's the fuel that drives us to faithful faithful service and faithful endurance for our great king. Let's pray. Father, how we ask that you would open our eyes to the glory of your son and his kingdom. We confess and we believe that if we would get a clear sight of him and his everlasting rule and reign, it would make such a difference in the service we give, in the attitude that we carry with us throughout the day, in our willingness to serve and be spent for others. Lord, would you work in our hearts this week that we might give evidence we believe our king reigns over us, over all the world, and we wait for that day when, that, when the revelation of his reign will be made clear to all. We, pray, we long for this and pray for this in his own name. Amen.